What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everyone. Stuckoo here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the History of Everything podcast, my hoes. Welcome back, everyone. Now, today, I'm going to say here from the very beginning that we have a little bit of an extra special episode because I wanted to talk about something that was not just one specific thing. You know how we've been usually doing a lot of episodes that are like a singular story and it's telling the entire history of one specific thing or a concept or a place or an event or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we've done that a lot, but I wanted to do something kind of like what we did in the very beginning where we did potatoes and it's a whole collection of stories. Or the ancient um, sex toys. Yes. Yeah. See where it shows all the different examples, because I find stuff like that to be very fun. And also I knew that looking at this, that I could create a whole bunch of short videos after it specifically <laughs> for like YouTube and for everything else. So, you know, just, just fun stuff like that. So today's topic, which you already can probably see from the uh, from the title of all this, but it is birth control, birth control, family planning and all of the really weird stuff that is related to it in history. Yeah, I, I, I'm letting you know, guys, right now and for you listening as well here, Gabby, as I'm talking directly while looking at you, this is something that is going to be weird. It's going to be funny at times and also at other times it is going to be downright disturbing, maybe a combination of all three at the same time. So to anyone who is listening that is perhaps not very interested in this topic, perhaps they're a little bit squeamish, I would advise probably listening to something else. Viewer discretion is advised. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> yeah, I guess in this case, listener discretion. But yes, or, or you know, I, and I say listen to something else. Um, another episode. Yeah, listen perhaps. to another episode of ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't just go on to another podcast. Definitely still stay on this one. It helps with our numbers and everything else. Speaking about numbers. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Uh, we are once again getting reviews from people that we are seeing, mind you, that are saying that, oh, they love the podcast, but that we have too many ads in. Now, I understand no one likes advertisements. They, they just don't. They're annoying unless they're in the Super Bowl, because if they're in the Super Bowl, then the ads are kind of hilarious. But that's besides the point. Maybe we could just make Super Bowl ads. Yeah, but I don't get choices on like the majority of that when I put them up I here. Know. The, the reality of it is that we tend to put in the exact same amount of ads as a, like a lot of the podcasts we listen to. So we're just a little confused. Yeah, because unfortunately, when people leave negative reviews, specifically because advertisements, it is something that affects our ratings, which it will overall hurt us. But then simultaneously, it's not because of the actual podcast itself. It's because of advertisements. And that's something that I don't really know necessarily what it is that we should do there, especially when, get, when we get bombarded by several of them. So I will say this. Uh, we tried to put in an ad every 10 to 15 minutes or so. If it is something that where there has been about 20 minutes or so without an ad, then I will put something in with two ad slots in one single one. And that's just something that I try to do so that that way, over the course of an hour long episode, maybe there are six advertisements, six 30 second 
advertisements or so. Not counting the pre-roll or the end roll, like whatever goes at the end of it. If this is still something that is bothering people, then, hey, I apologize. I try to reduce as many ads as I possibly can. And if you want ad-free episodes, again, only a dollar a month and you can go to Patreon and that's where they all are. You get bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes. So, hey, just keep that in mind. But either way, uh, if you're looking at blocking something else, which I don't know, I don't know if I'm <laughs> I trying. I just feel like that's not a good segue into I, a birth control episode. I know. I, like, I wanted to turn that into a joke about condoms or something else here, but I really didn't know what direction I was going to go in with that. Okay, well, just go. Okay, just go. okay listen, we, we got to start. Without further ado. Without further ado, let's talk birth control. <laughs> Yes, yes, this is not a modern politics channel or anything like that. No, no, no. We're, this is a history one. So we're going into all the wacky old stuff. I, I, I know I put a thing in here in the notes, Gabby, about the whole thing with the birth control pill, which you are talking power. Do you have any idea how powerful socially something has to be? There are pills that you would take to cure malaria. There are pills that people take in order to not feel pain. Do you have any idea how powerful something is for something to be known as the pill that specifically it relates to birth control? Like it is, it is not getting pregnant. How powerful that is in the minds of people that that is what the pill is. It definitely changed society and gave a whole bunch of people um, a little more freedom over their own body. Oh yeah. Like, look, if we're talking 150 years ago, if something could be called the pill, it probably would be the, the, the medication that was used to stop malaria because it's thanks to that, that people were able to actually go further into places that were completely unexplored in like Africa and into South America, et cetera. Just where before literally malaria would kill people by the millions and they couldn't actually go in and do anything. So this is something that, is ancient, the concept of birth control and how important it is for people. But, 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 but the big thing is it was not how it is nowadays. There was all different kinds of techniques. There were so, so many different ways that people practice different modes of birth control. Since the beginning of time, right? Humans have been having sex, not just for the purpose of reproducing. They've, they've been doing it for funsies. I don't know how else it is that I'm supposed to say that. <laughs> funsies. Yeah, they've been boinking for funsies. You know, that's that's been a thing. Then there's been all kinds of different things that they would do for it. Okay, so like Gabby, before we had stuff with, you know, the birth control movement, which was very closely then tied to the feminist movement, women used to rely on all different kinds of homemade oral contraceptives uh, and other things that were not oral, uh, different combinations of herbs, spices, even heavy metals like literal pieces of metal or like ground up when we say heavy metal for anyone that's confused with this, we're not, we're not talking like, Oh, they took a literal piece of iron and shoved it up there. No, we mean stuff like, uh, like mercury, like the stuff that's in some thermometers. That's terrifying. Oh, it is. And we're going to go into all the details of that, which that again, remember when I said, uh, if you, if you're a little bit squeamish, they would also use different things to make barriers to stop stuff uh, like out of animal guts and all other different kinds of things that would try to block sperm. Uh, th this would also be composed of different things of different ingredients that perhaps could have some degree of effect on sperm. But it, it varies. It varies upon the time, place and the ideas of what it is they would have to use. So I compiled a list 
of a whole bunch of different things that were used around the world with varying degrees of success and the little kind of stories behind them, right? First one on this list, honey and acacia, which I feel feel really weird saying because you know what the term like honeypot is, right? No. Okay, honeypot is a slang term that specifically also refers to a woman's you can yeah. say a vagina. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know why I'm, I, I'm not on TikTok or anything like this. I understand that I can definitely say Just make that. sure to mark the episode explicit on which, yeah, Spotify. It is. So th- that is what they refers to, which makes it very ironic, in my opinion, that one of the techniques that people would use that goes all the way back to almost 2000 BC in Egypt is that women would have a birth control method that would involve a mixture of honey, acacia fruit, and acacia leaves as a kind of natural spermicide. So what they would do is they would mix honey and acacia fruit and they would soak a piece of like linen or cotton in the mixture. And then they would insert that linen or the cotton into their vaginas before they would have sex. And then that combination would then kill some of the sperm before it would reach the uterus. Right? Like that was the idea. Did it work? Well, here's the thing. It was a common technique that people would use. And to be fair, looking at this, I cannot help but think that among all the things on this list, that is probably one of the somewhat more reasonable thought patterns behind. Because like we, we know this now, but similar things would be done with like lemon rinds and other stuff, which I know I'm going to mention as another technique later. But people would do stuff that if you can change the pH level from within the vagina, even slightly, that has a massive effect upon a person's overall health and the viability for sperm, right? Yes. Like it all needs a very- Well, that's the, spermicides still exist. Like people yeah. still use spermicide as a form of birth control. Right. But it needs a very specific environment in order to be able to move, in order to not die, right? So this is something that would have a degree of effect. I don't know the exact, I, there's no statistics on this where they like got a whole bunch of volunteers together to kind of test it out or what, anything. But they didn't test their birth control before they used it? Shocking. Well, what I mean is that that was the passed down techniques that people would use and they had to have some kind of effect. Otherwise, they wouldn't just not do it. But then you do stuff, of course, with combination with like praying to the gods and amulets and all other different kinds of things because magic and religion and Everything else was very, very closely tied, especially in ancient Egypt. That was a very important thing, right? The next one on here, and this is also something that is out of Egypt, though other places would have similar kinds of things. Crocodile poop. I remember this one from the ancient Egyptian medical practices. Yes, yes. We did cover this one kind of in medicine. So I will say that this is probably the least hygienic ingredient out of all the things that we're going to be covering in here. But it wasn't just crocodile poop, right? So the ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians would mix crocodile dung with other ingredients, right? With honey, with fruit, with all other different kinds of things. And then they would use that to form a pessary, which is a block that would then get inserted into the vagina. To be a physical block, which I, I cannot help but think. Once that's up there. Unless, like, would they use, like, a a cloth or something that it would be, that would be wrapped around it? Kind of like when you would have a tampon? Because if you take a hardened piece of shit 
and just shove it up there. I think it's How smart though, because they're just using it as like a It's blocker. a physical barrier. Yeah, yes. a barrier yeah. control. Each, which, to be fair, yeah, among all things, that probably would do some of the most of actually physically blocking it. How would you get it out? You just go in and get it out. Yeah, but I mean, unless they have like a string or something you that don't is attached need a, to it. It's like a diva cup. You know, you put a whole cup up there and then you just pull it out. You just have to be, you just have to pull it out. I guess so, but I just, I can't. Yeah, but that we're talking about a modern cup, not literal poop. Yeah, but that was probably smaller than these cups. True, but oh my God, I don't even know. Hey everyone, Sakuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, but like that isn't the um, the only type of feces that they would use. Like, I'm not sure why crocodile dung specifically was used in the first place, but in places like India and in the Middle East, people would use elephant feces in a similar way, which is significantly bigger than crocodile, I, I, I would say. So that means that they would have to take parts of it, right? They would have to shape it and then they would have to use it. I am not exactly sure as to the degree of success that these uh, these techniques had, but Boy, oh boy, are they interesting. Which leads us to perhaps ones that we know were effective, technically, but for all the very wrong reasons. Lead and mercury. Well, that's not great. No, it's not. From the very beginning, you have any idea how many times we've talked about lead and mercury poisoning with varying different aspects of like within this podcast? Well, here's the thing that, um, here's the thing about history and science. We find something, we're like, wow, this thing is so cool. It can do all of these cool things. We start using it immediately. Mm -hmm. And then years later, we're like, oh, it does all of this. That, oh, that's not great. Like leaded gasoline and everything. I'm just waiting to see what um, happens in like 50 years to the American population. Mm -hmm. Well, then we'll be like, oh, this does all this. Darn. We've now figured out what corn syrup is doing to you. <laughs> and as it turns out, all Third these leg. Yeah, all these tails that people are growing are <laughs> those are new corn stalks, actually. But no, I think um it's just it, it just happens because I'm I'm just wondering what we use today that people are gonna be like, I can't believe they did that with it. Like, okay, you know what? Get cut us a break. We're doing our best. It's true. It's true. So I'm not judging them too hard. Like they did what they thought was best. Though, to be fair, when we're talking about this as well, like lead, I get as people didn't really know because lead was used to transport other stuff. They didn't really realize that particles of lead were getting into things and that, that was poisoning people. But mercury, people knew that mercury, when ingested, could really mess you up, right? Because like a long time ago, people would apply and ingest and do a variety of different things with very poisonous substances and heavy metals that we know today are extremely dangerous. And all around the world, these things like mercury, lead, arsenic, etc., were used specifically in order to prevent pregnancy or give immortality 
or cure a variety of other illnesses. The ancient Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Chinese, women would drink combinations of liquid mercury, liquid lead, or arsenic, right? In order to prevent conception. They drank it. Drank it. Now, unfortunately, these poisonous substances would also then lead to failures within their bodily systems, like their kidneys, their livers, their lungs, their, yeah, prolonged exposure. Hell, I'm not even going to say prolonged, just exposure to in the first place is immediately going to cause bodily damage. The real question is, did they work? Yes. Well, it did its job. Look at that. Effective. Yeah, because like there's the problem. Mercury is too effective. It, It. the reason mercury works in the first place and the reason why they could use it on like Lewis and Clark's expedition and at other forms of ancient medicine is because when mercury would be ingested, it would kill bacteria. It would do all this. So if you were going to use mercury as an example to treat STDs, which mind you, Gabby, they would use mercury to, t- to treat STDs. That is a thing that we are going to talk about in this as well. Did it work? It would work to a degree because it would kill bacteria, but it would also really hurt you. It's the equivalent of, oh man, I have this thing. Like I have this growth on my arm. I'm going to put acid on it. Basically. But the acid also is not just going to burn your skin. It's going to go in and infect your bloodstream too. I don't think it would infect your bloodstream, but it'll, it'll do something. So, well, that's what would happen with mercury, especially if you inserted it inside of you and it was absorbed. As would happen with some of the women who are using this as part of a thing that was inserted into them. How many things did people insert? That is going to be a very common trend over the course of this episode. You will not believe the sheer amount of things that I found that people were inserting, which sounds, <laughs> very, sounds so wrong. very wrong to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So something else then that is more reasonable besides mercury. This is something we made a short on before, but silphium. So this is a plant in ancient Rome and Greece that this is something from the ancient Near East that women would ingest as a kind of oral contraceptive. And it is called silphium, which is a species of giant fennel. What they would do with this is that they would soak cotton or lint in the juice of this herb, and then they would insert it inside of them in their vaginas in order to prevent pregnancy. Silphium seeds became so incredibly valuable that these would actually be used as a form of currency, like by weight, because they were deemed to be more valuable than silver. It was incredibly lucrative. The stems were roasted, the roots were eaten with vinegar, the sap that it was produced, or that it was producing, known as lasser, could be grated over foods and became a really popular condiment across the ancient Greek world. Sheep and goats would be fed with silphium. And when this happened, if you were eating goat meat that had been eating on silphium, this is this is like the luxury grass fed cow, super organic, crunchy. Like that's the nice stuff. Like it was believed that their meat would taste the best. This was the Wagyu beef where it's like they're fed beer and everything. But for goats, they had silphium. They had that good drug in them. Basically, it was also not just for food, as we covered a very crucial medicine for doing everything from treating people with sore throats and hernias to be used as an aphrodisiac and birth control. Here's the funny thing about it. Did it work for all of those things or did they just see this plant and go, you know what? We can make a lot of money if we make people think it's valuable. It must have. We don't know because I'm going to cover this in just a little bit with it. But the plant is extinct. We don't have it anymore. It's gone. 
it is completely wiped. There are multiple theories as to why that happened. I feel like we could bring it back. Like if you can bring back a woolly mammoth, you could bring back Silphium. You would think so. You would think so. But we don't really have any. In fact, I don't even know if there are any live seeds of it that people have been able to find. You got to think this is this is a thing that has been dead for over 2000 years, effectively. And it's a plant. Are you looking it up right now to see if there is? Well, I know there's probably not okay. any seeds. So but I'm just one of the theories as well is that when you look at the seeds, right, of Silphium, it looks like the modern day heart. So it's one of the ideas behind why the heart symbol is what it is. You know how they say, oh, it's a it's like a human heart that's been split into two, like it's the two valves and everything like it's, it's showing it. The other idea is that it's the Silphium seeds because the Silphium seeds actually look like a heart. That that's what it is. So it's, it's very closely associated with that idea. Silphium was so incredibly valuable that the city of Cyrene, which that is in North Africa. So if you look at Egypt and heading over towards Tunisia in between there, you had the ancient city of Cyrene and that place where this plant would be found. It was so incredibly valuable that they would use pictures of the plant on their coins. Like that was a huge mark of status for them. It was a really big moneymaker. That to them was the equivalent of the Roman eagle. It was such a big status symbol. But the funny thing is, despite all of this, all this knowledge, all of this idea that we have about how great it was, we actually don't know what it was. I've done all this talking. We literally do not know what it was. I've heard it was a species of giant fennel. Yeah, because I just said that like two minutes ago. See, the, the, the funny thing is about this whole thing is that Silphium is a victim of its own success. It had to have worked or at least have done something to be so incredibly valuable because it is extinct and it only grew on a very narrow strip of land along the coast of North Africa and farmers were unable to cultivate it in any other regions. Due to the demand for Silphium, its numbers would dwindle drastically. And by the second century BC, the plant was considered extinct. It was gone. We don't know why it disappeared. We really don't. But there are a series of theories as to why this happened. Some evidence suggests that the plant was gathered just too extensively, like they over harvested it and it killed it. The Greeks at least had tried to restrict the amount of silphium each year that was harvested. But the Romans didn't care about that. They just knew there was a product that was in demand and they were going to import as much of it as they could. So theoretically, the Romans could have wiped it out by simply consuming too much. It is also thought that desertification could have done something to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever seen the ancient maps of North Africa and they show like the climate of what it was thousands of years ago? Where it wasn't um, desert. Oh, where, what? Yeah, it wasn't desert. Yeah, it wasn't nearly as much desert as what it is today. Uh, I don't remember the exact number and I really wish that I had done that for this podcast. 
but the the region that we think of as North Africa, where there's a very thin strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea that is actually arable, that arable land 2000 years ago was much, much further into what is today just desert. So there was more arable land, not super arable, like it wasn't amazing land in the first place, but there was more arable land. A larger population could live there because there was more that was able to be produced in comparison to what would be, say, a thousand years after that. Either way, it's gone. The final theory that I was able to find was that the, this specific thing might have actually been a combination of two different species of fennel. And that hybridization could have created it. Thus is why even if you got these seeds, you wouldn't actually be able to grow them in another place because potentially they were sterile. We don't know. We literally have nothing that would tell us exactly why. It could have produced asexually. The seeds could have just been dead and not actually of any use whatsoever. Could have been over harvested. Could have been any number of things. We don't know, but it's dead and gone forever. Or at least it seems to be. If someone magically finds it and brings it back in here, I would love to study it so that people could see what it actually does. But all we know is that it was an ancient form of birth control. Another plant, though, that we have is something called Queen Anne's Lace. Now, Queen's Anne Lace is something that has been used as a form of birth control for thousands of years. It is one of the oldest forms of birth control in the world. And it is still something that is going on to this day, like people will use as a kind of alternate medicine or alternate alternative alternative. That's the proper word. They'll use it as a kind of alternative medicine for it. It's this kind of lacy, delicate wildflower with a lot of different names. And based on the text or religion or whatever it is that you're looking at, it'll have a number of different things. Uh, Doshis Carota. Wild carrot, black carrot, bishop's lace, cow lace, bird nest, etc. It's native to Europe and Central Asia and has been naturalized to North America, South Africa, and Australia. Now I say naturalized, but you know exactly what that means. If it's it's a plant, invasive, it's invasive. I love how you were able to immediately pick that. Yes, yes, it is invasive. Uh, widely considered invasive and a pest in many places, but. It is also something that people have been using as a kind of medicine for a long time, which I find it very funny that this entire thing is so very easy to reproduce because, again, what people would use this thing for is to not reproduce. That is kind of the effect of it. It's not a contraceptive, right? And I didn't know this looking at this. I feel like I should have learned this already, but I had to learn as to what actually counts as a contraceptive. So because this is a medicine that does not prevent ovulation, ejaculation, fertilization, or conception, it is not a contraceptive. It's also not an abortive because it does not disrupt early pregnancy that is already established and healthy. Rather, what they would do with this thing is they would brew it as a tea and drink it, and that would disrupt normal hormonal shifts in the body that would then enhance and develop healthy endometrial lining for pregnancy in order to allow for implantation. This helps make the uterus inhospitable so that you could technically get fertilized, you could get pregnant, but then the fetus is not actually able to implant itself onto the walls of the uterus. 
So they took Queen Anne's lace to give themselves what people like me naturally have. Yes. Cool. Yeah. But not cool. No, but the people. Interesting. Would, it is interesting. It is also something of the way that it was used that I would think that other things that would just prevent it in the first place would be more of a pleasant experience than well, this. If it's just disrupting hormonal shift and it's not doing anything else. I mean, they might have side effects. They might have some really fun side effects, actually. People still use it to this day. Like that is still a thing that people do. I don't know its exact effectiveness because there, there, there aren't. Like there are studies, but you can never really tell with these kinds of things with these plants and home brood effects because the the science behind what affects your hormones is so vastly different for each person that we can't precisely say, right? Yes. Next one after this, and it's a little bit more of a um, everyday thing, but nonetheless just makes me laugh. Olive oil. Did they drink it? Yes, but more so inserted was the thing. That's probably the most pleasant thing they've inserted thus far. <laughs> That's probably the most pleasant thing they've inserted so far. Gabby, 2023. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, I had to catch you on that. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's hear about your olive oil. <laughs> okay, so according to Serranus, who was this Greek physician, Women who did not want to conceive a child should smear an ointment that was made of old olive oil onto the orifice of the uterus, as in the cervix. And Serranus was very unclear about exactly what the recipe was in order to make this primitive spermicide. He suggested that women could use a mixture of olive oil, honey, cedar resin, or, or balsam tree juice with or without white lead. You know, just for funsies in there, I'm just to make sure. I'm starting to think this didn't work. Yeah, he he most likely had learned about this kind of contraceptive method from Aristotle, who also advised that people use olive oil and cedar oil in their vaginas in order to slow the motility of sperm. Now, if that did not work for you, there was another idea that they had involving pomegranates. Because according to this guy, women should grind the inside of a fresh pomegranate peel, then add water and apply it to their vagina. Or if they wanted to do something like next level, make it more complex, they could do more things like take two parts pomegranate peel to one part oak gall, which is a large growth on a tree that is caused by a certain type of insect and equal parts pomegranate peel with rose oil and gum. And then after they would insert the pomegranate peel internally, they would always follow this by drinking honey water. I don't think the honey water would do anything. I'm very I confused about all that in the first place. I love place. how these guys are just trying to make something fun up. Like, let's make this an experience. Yeah. To be fair, pomegranates can be pretty acidic, right? They're, wait, are pomegranates citrus? No, they're not citrus. They're palm. Like, that's why it's pomegranate, right? Palm is in like an apple. Like, it's closer related to the apple than it is citrus. But still, it does have a degree of, wait, does it have citric acid? Wait, is that what? I'm now drawing a blank. Gabby, scientist person. I know you don't study plants at all. I barely <laughs> know what a pomegranate is. is. Citric acid in, <laughs> in apples and pomegranates? I don't know. I'm just realizing now okay. that I should have probably looked into that before I started talking. My question, my thing is, so back in the day, they really, really wanted to prevent pregnancy. Yeah. They could have just not 
done the act. Oh, yeah, because we totally see how abstinence-only education works when it comes <laughs> to preventing pregnancies. Here's the thing. Technically speaking, you are 100% right. Like, if you don't do the deed, I you're just, not going to get pregnant. Back in the day, back in the day, um, I simply would have become a nun mm -hmm. because the thought of having a kid every nine months Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound very appealing. Depending on what part of the world you were in, you might be stolen. As a nun? Yeah. You yeah. can't steal a nun. That's literally against the rules. God, the people still did it anyways. There's no point in being a nun then. Do you remember when we were at... Um, Oxford. Yeah, we were at that Oxford. And remember how there was that place that, that uh, there was that church and there was a nun and the Lord was apparently obsessed with her and tried to chase her around and get her. And by get her, we mean get with her. And by get with her, we mean against her will. Oh, yeah. He went to marry her. And then against she was her like, will. no. And then he got injured in battle and she prayed for him. And then he got better. Yeah. So technically speaking, you should be safe as a nun. In the medieval world, you are not safe. What if I was an ugly nun? Then I'd be safe. Probably more so. But you might still get taken if, on a Viking raid if that happens. Okay. Well, this is just thoroughly unpleasant. Yo, yes. Welcome to sexual history. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Completely. A hundred percent. Either way, we're going to move on from pomegranates because I'm kind of lost on the whole thing with rose water and honey and that. And it was I'm, honey water, and not honey rose water. water. Well, rose. It was yeah, ground I'm, up pomegranate seeds. Yes, ground up And then you drink honey water. Honey water. Yes. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So similar to what they would use with that, right? There would be something to be said about lemons, right? So a common thing that people would have once they had access to it is that they would use lemon rinds because in the past people assumed that the more like the citric acid, the, the natural acidity of the lemon would have spermicidal qualities, which, you know, I, I, I think that would, I mean, that would make this fruit a more effective form of ancient birth control. Women would soak sponges or cotton in lemon juice and then insert it into their vaginas. <laughs> Which would act both as a barrier from the physical sponge that was there in the cervix and also a spermicide from the lemon juice. Rumor has it that Casanova, which have you ever heard the term Casanova, like yeah. a guy who's trying to seduce someone? I did yeah. not know that was a real person. No, he was a real person. He was a real person. This very famous Venetian ladies man of the 18th century, he supposedly fashioned a cervical cap out of half a lemon in order to just give to his sex partners to use. Now That's there was so sweet. A guy who is really responsible for his weight in birth control. Now there's nothing, Slay. there's nothing that says that it was a different one that was used. So I'm wondering if he just used, you just rinse it out. I'm sure you just like put some water on there. Yeah. But I'm assuming oh, yeah. he used that different. Like he would probably be using a fresh one every time. Yeah. It's or every other time. That's or every fair. few times, like maybe once a week. Once a week. 
how many people was he getting with on the regular? That's well, the thing Casanova, that I wonder. So I'm assuming quite a few per it's night. It's true. Another technique that people would also use is douches because remember we, we've talked about, you know, stuff that physically blocked sperm and whatnot, but a very common thing that people would just try to do is to wash it out. This was a very common thing that was done in Rome to prevent pregnancy. Women would rinse their vaginas with all different kinds of substances, uh, seawater, lemon juice, vinegar, whatever you can think of, they would. But do you want to hear a particularly bad one? Of course. Lysol. When was Lysol invented? Okay, yeah, I, I should have specified here because I'm jumping from ancient Rome to Lysol. And for a lot of the people who are listening to this right now, they're going to be very confused. But we are talking about Lysol, the cleaning agent, like the stuff that you'd keep under your sink. The thing that you would pull out to disinfect or wipe down countertops or bathroom surfaces, all that kind of stuff. Most of us, when we look at that substance, they're not probably thinking, hey, we we're going to put this disinfectant onto our bodies or specifically in this case for women into our bodies. But in the early 1900s, Lysol was trying to get women to do exactly that. So, Gabby, check this out. Check this out. Lysol, when it was introduced, was being marketed to housewives. Now, you would think, okay, it's a cleaning agent in like the early 1900s. Of course, it's being advertised to housewives. That just makes a lot of sense. That's who's going to be using it, right? Well, it was not to use as a household cleaner but rather as a feminine hygiene product that would ensure their, quote, feminine daintiness and protect their married happiness. Their married happiness? Yeah, yeah. See, rather than using it as a common cleaning agent like what we know today, early 1900s Lysol was advertised as a type of douche that women would squirt up their vaginas in order to kill germs that cause odors. And entice their husbands who are disturbed by their foul-smelling vaginas to come back to them. I feel like every single marketing ad campaign from like the 1900s makes me violently angry. I know. Like genuinely, whoever was in charge of marketing back in the... And the worst part is it worked. Mm -hmm. Like that's what really gets me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, A lot of these ads focused on the idea of winning back their husband's attention, which places the blame and the burden on the wife entirely for causing this indifference, which is like, okay, if you just don't bathe or something, if you don't wash or take care of yourself, I, 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 I understand to a degree because it's a whole thing for like basic upkeep of a person. Using Lysol on your vagina is not what I would call basic upkeep. In fact, if anything, it seems to be very damaging, which is something that we're going to cover. The ads would claim that using Lysol for feminine douching would, quote, bring back intimacy. Yeah, the big thing is it would carry this uh, this other subtler message of going beyond just basic cleanliness. And you might wonder. Why? Why? Very good question, Gabby. The reason is because in America at this time where this was a thing that was being used, there was a thing called the Comstock Law. And when the Comstock Law was passed, this made contraceptives illegal in the United States and would remain so all the way until 1965. Therefore, instead of using all these homebrew 
oral ingestives and other things that would be done, douching after intercourse was really the only common technique that people had to really be able to use that wasn't just, you know, a at-home brewed technique. Like, there was no standard contraceptive that anyone could take. Albeit, of course, this is not a very effective method at all. Wait, did you say contraceptives were illegal? Yes. In most places around the world, contraceptives were illegal. Like when you have marketed medicine for it, people would but have all why? different kinds of homebrew techniques. Do we know why? Well, in many places, they'd be tied to health, religious law, etc. There's a number of different reasons as to why. They really said you have no choice but to have children. I think at the time that this like in the 1800s, the average amount of children that a woman had was eight. Yeah, I know you're looking at me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was definitely born in the right century, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm going to go. It's like when you all get the girls and say, oh, oh my God, look, I was born in the wrong generation. Really? Now, were you? Oh, yeah. No, like I remember everybody would, um, you know, glamorize the 1920s because the flappers. And I'm like, <laughs> no. Well, also because I'm obviously not one of the girls who would have been a flapper. No, completely understandable. So with, with, with so few of options that are available to, uh, to women everywhere here, Lysol advertising as a feminine product made it one of the most popular contraceptive devices around because not only was it something that was cheap, that it was convenient, it was easy to use, but it would clean and refresh you and simultaneously be able to act as a method of birth control because it cleans things out did it work no yeah i figured no the whole problem with the idea of douching afterwards right is that the sperm has already been shot up there even if you go and douche within seconds afterwards yeah it's, it's long it's gone it's already up there like it's not going to do anything it's a common technique that people would use but you're not really reducing your chances down by all that much to make it an actual effective thing well at least it smelled lemony fresh oh god so here's the thing. Here's the thing. They did a study on this, right? In 1933 for women that used Lysol for douching. And it showed that over half of the women who used Lysol still ended up getting pregnant. Which if you want to say, oh, hey, it reduced that number by 50%. We have no way of showing. And if your success rate is 50%, my, my guy, my girl, my, 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 my people. That is not a good number. It could have been worse, you know? Oh, it, and for like the 1930s, that 50% must have been a great success rate. Yeah, you know, with your six, six times a year meetings, I guess. I don't know exactly what it would be, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. It wasn't that it was just ineffective as a birth control. Shit was actually harmful. Yeah, it's Lysol. It's Lysol that you were putting into your vagina. And, and here, here's where it's going to get bad. Here's where it's going to get bad. The claim that they had on all the advertisements was that this was safe. It was gentle. It was non-caustic. It was perfectly able to be used on the delicate tissue of a woman. Yeah, no, that whole shit, that's false. That is completely false. At this time that Lysol is being used, it is not the same as the Lysol today. The ingredients were stronger and more caustic. Okay. So when you were using them on your insides, 
you're burning yourself. Around the world, people roast, um, I don't know if you know this, but people roast Americans continuously for how lawsuit happy they are. But now I'm starting to understand that they have all of the right. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No, when you look at products and the ideas that people had from like the 1800s going into the early 1900s and how bad so much of the stuff is, honestly, next podcast episode that we should do, bad products. Do you have any you idea? You can't just do bad product. Maybe bad historical products, but like if you put the wrong product in here, that's still around today. Well, I mean, we're going to be covering stuff that has likely been around since the 1800s or, or 1900s. You know, it's just stuff that was sold that was a really bad idea to sell. I we think that would be to, a fun one. We'll, we'll re, oh, like baby cages? Like baby cages. Okay, maybe. Yeah. See, all different kinds of things. And we could run with themes on those. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. But either way, as I said, Lysol was more toxic back then than what it is today. Until 1953, Lysol contained an ingredient called Crestol. Crestol is a harsh antiseptic that would cause burning and inflammation. And by 1911, doctors had found 193 cases of poisonings with five deaths that were a result of douching with Lysol. 193 people got horribly sick and five people outright just died from using Lysol in their vaginas. Yeah, your your face of judgment right now staring at the screen of the notes is one of disbelief. Well, my question is when. So in 1965. Birth control became. Yes. Popularized or legal. Yes. So until then, people were just using Lysol. Yeah. One of the most common and uh, popular ones that people would use was Lysol then. Yes. And they literally died. Yes. There are at least five recorded deaths, recorded deaths and 193 poisoning cases from it. And that's not even that's actual poisoning where people got horribly sick, not just counting when people would get irritated and very like and like kind of hurt by it, but still be OK. Every time I've even inhaled Lysol, I've been like, I'm on death's door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't until the 1960s when the pill actually becomes a thing that Lysol starts to fall out of popularity because, you know, the pill and other birth control methods and different things become more available for women to access. And by then, Lysol had also changed their formula to something that was less toxic and was better as an actual just household cleaning agent rather than being used inside of people's bodies. And on that note, I have an ad for it here. I, I, when I was doing the research for this podcast and we're going to post this onto uh, well, our website, it, we'll and post on it on Patreon. Patreon and then we'll post it on like the history of everything podcast, uh, website. And I'll just like post all of your ads and weird. Yeah. Fun facts. So for anyone that wants to look at this and I, I'm physically describing it right now, 
it this is an advertisement that shows a housewife trying to get inside of a door which has all these different drawings of locks on it that just says doubt inhibitions ignorance those are the locks yes those are the locks that are holding her back from being able to get to her husband and it says quote often a wife fails to realize the doubts due to one's intimate neglect shut her out from a happy married love in other words because she's neglecting herself and not taking care of herself, her husband doesn't want to be intimate with her. But you have to keep in mind that this woman in the ad looks more put together than 98% of um, any of us who exist today. Like re- This is going to sound horrible to say, but we can't see her vagina. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, delete- we're deleting that. Steven. No. We're deleting that. You're, you're, I just canceled you. Anyway, read the ad. Okay, so it says a man marries a woman because he loves her. So instead of blaming him, if married love begins to cool, she should question herself. Talk about blame, right? Who was marketing? Okay, first of all, I guess it was the 1930s. I I don't even see a date that is on this in here. That has to be a joke, right? No, this is genuine. This is genuine. There's a whole bunch more of these. There's a whole bunch more of these. Is she truly trying to keep her husband and herself eager, happy, married lovers? One most effective way to safeguard her dainty feminine allure is by practicing complete feminine hygiene as provided by vaginal douches with a scientifically correct preparation like Lysol. So easy a way to banish the misgivings that often keep married lovers apart. Okay, so we're just going to read that part. And um, there's like a whole other page to this ad. Like back then, they're really through the essay part of into their advertising. Like they really wrote you an entire thesis. So we'll just post that and you can read it because I am truly filled with a level of rage I have never felt before. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's, it's gross, but it is so funny. And it literally says, for complete feminine hygiene, rely on Lysol, a concentrated germ killer. Yeah, it kills a lot more than just the germs inside of the vagina. I'm well, telling you that. Now I know what I'm going to do later, babe. Oh God, please don't. Wait, hold I'm going to try it out no, on men. No, we tried it out on women. It's time to flip it. <sighs> to be fair, over the course of this entire episode, we have pretty much only been talking about women. We have. Like, that's it. it to be fair, the majority when of When we history, said we want more women's history, not what we meant. No, there's a lot of things that we can cover. And this is unfortunately one of the big things. Because when you, when you talk about birth control, birth obviously, con- yeah. I mean, men can have a million children. Women would have to, we're, we're a lot more limited, but would be affected way more by yeah. the simple act of love. Oh, yeah. The overwhelming majority of this has been focused on the female side of things, to be fair. Or I guess in this case, to be unfair. Except for the absolute Chad feminist Casanova, who made lemon rinds to stick up the hoo-hahs. Yeah. But he was a king who really cared about his part in preventing pregnancy. Uh huh. And I appreciate him for that. Uh huh. Like truly let's give that man his snaps and claps. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, some of these things that are birth control techniques are unisex. Like when they are topically being applied to male genitalia, as well as the inside of the vagina, like when you would make mixtures of spermicide and be like, oh, hey, here's a lubricant that goes on your dick, but it's also supposed to kill the sperm and stuff inside. Like, yeah, that's the thing that people would use. But the big thing for men would not really happen until much later on with stuff until the condom. 
and you'd think that condoms are a very recent invention. Gabby, they are not. They are old, like very old. Though at the time, they weren't called condoms. They were called sheaths, like as in for a sword. So you, you stick it in the sheath, and they were reusable and all different kinds of things. Oh, yeah, I saw your face. Just do a little double take right there. Yeah, yeah, here, here's where we're going to get into this. So when we are talking about condoms, right, the documentation of condoms is a little bit sketchy, but when we go back to the beginning, one of the original stories is that King Minos of Crete in around 3000 BC, the guy who ruled Knossos, was a, a very key and important figure from the Bronze Age for this. See, he's been referenced in a number of different manuscripts, including famous things like the Iliad by Homer, and Minos was the father of the Minotaur, who is said to have serpents and scorpions in his semen. Okay, so first of all, no one was having, that was the birth control. That was the birth control, yeah. Like so, immediately that would prevent the birth, because they would prevent the pre-birth yeah, interactions. Per, per the stories, his mistresses just died after having intercourse with him. Well, look at that. He took care of this mm-hmm. one. So in order to protect himself and his partners, which included his wife, yeah, it's good to know that his partners included his wife. It's a good thing. <laughs> you just now got that. I was like, what's wrong with this? <laughs> yeah, all of his mistresses just seem to keep on dying, but you know, at least he got the wife involved. Well, I'm pretty sure he's had mistresses because he didn't want to kill his wife because he was a thoughtful husband. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So what they used was the bladder of a goat that when introduced into the woman's vagina, this would protect the women from disease. They invented the first female condom, yeah. essentially. Yeah, like that would be the idea of it, right. And it kept the scorpions and serpents out. Yeah, but the really weird thing about all this is you're talking about inserting something as like a total block, right? Like a complete and total block. Yeah, the bladder of a goat is pretty big. Yeah, so considering the story... The way that it goes is that apparently significant results were shown from this that Pasiphae, the wife, was then able to give birth to eight children after the use of the goat's bladder. Wait, wait, yeah, yeah. Now you're wondering what the hell? What the hell? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Express your thoughts, Gabby. I'm thinking, and this is what I think happened. So it, it was a funnel. So maybe they put tiny little holes tiny and it goes like a strainer. Oh, yeah. So the, it kept the scorpions and the serpents out, uh-huh. but it let the um, sperm through. Uh-huh. So what they did essentially is they strained out everything that was deadly uh-huh. and it made way for life. Uh-huh. So I think they were just um, very smart and forward thinking. You know what? Among all things that you could have said. I have no idea where this one would go. Yours is probably the most reasonable thing that could be stated from this. Thank you. That's what I do with my science degree. They didn't, like, they knew sex led to children. They didn't know how sex led to children is the thing. I also don't know how scorpions and serpents came out of um, someone's penis, but. Yeah, yeah. Now, in regards to something that would be just applied to the man, Egyptians were one of the first civilizations to use, quote, sheaths. For protection, what they would use is linen sheaths, like linen that would be bound into a shape and then wrapped around the penis in order to prevent tropical diseases. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought they put that in because I was like, that doesn't sound like it would fly. Yes. They would coat it in honey and other stuff like lubricant and use it. 
awesome. Awesome. So they just put the cloth covered right up there. Right up there. Right that there. sounds like friction. Like when that, I feel like it would be uncomfortable. No, no, you would think so. Yeah. Yeah. The, but the other reason why they would use this is to prevent the transmission and obtaining of diseases like, uh, this is, this is going to be a word. Oh, just a myosis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that parasite. Oh, you want to talk about it here? You, you, you do the talking since I have a whole section on this. Well, that parasite, because they worked in water and it's passed through water. Uh-huh. A lot of boys got it. Yep. So it was actually believed that young men did not become men until they had their first period. Yep. Because what this parasite did is it got into the individual and it caused them to bleed out of their penis. Yep. So that's fun. Yep. She is entirely right. I literally was researching that. I don't know why I go down weird Wikipedia rabbit holes and um, I was writing about parasites and this one really popped because it, they were like, yeah, actually there was this whole group of men who all got periods, but then they actually explained it was the parasite causing them to bleed out of there. Well, they had blood in their stool and urine. Yeah. I, I have this whole quote here from a second here for the notes. Do you want to just go ahead and, uh, and read that for me, Gabby? Do you want to tell the audience, the world about this little detail? According to accounts, Egyptian pharaohs in 1950 BC wrote of urinary bladder disturbances that were probably schistosomiasis hematobium. So I probably butchered that part, but the hieroglyph used to denote the disease was a dripping penis from around 1200 BC. Schistosome eggs have been found in mummies. Ew. Yeah. So their hieroglyph was literally a dripping, like a penis dripping blood. Yeah, because that's how you became a man. Yep. Yep. I'm going to tell you this right now. Don't look up the parasite. If you like, you look I up the concept. I think everybody should look up the parasite. It because is so it exi- gross. It still exists. Yeah, I. I'm going to get one. Also, whoa, why whoa, whoa, didn't whoa, whoa, they whoa, use. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you're going to get one? For science. For science. Gabby. Why didn't they put a leech? Stay away from me. They could just stick a little leech on the head of the penis. Oh. I feel like that would have been an effective form of birth control. Gabby. I'm just trying to spitball some ideas. Yeah, you're going to make me spit up. (laughs) Gabby. (laughs) Please, that is not the most disturbing thing we've learned all day. Oh, my God. That's not even a learning. That's a hypothetical. And the idea of that is. I feel like we could try it out. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Again, don't look up the parasite if you don't want to, because yeah. Okay, fine. I was going to put a cute little like, um, list, like a cartoon version of it and just slap it up on the screen. A cartoon version of this would be worse. Oh God. Fair enough. Also, how have you guys not seen this parasite? Come on. (laughs) You guys haven't just Googled parasites for fun. Oh my Lord. Anyway. This isn't the only thing that would happen when it came to men, because we got to go back to condoms. So the Romans were very keen on developing different aspects of public health since diseases in big empires were very prevalent and they would spread all around the Mediterranean. Go figure when you have a big empire and you have soldiers that are traveling all around the place, uh, having relations with people, diseases are going to spread. And so the condoms that were used in ancient Rome would be made of a variety of things, linen, animal as in like sheep and goat intestines or bladders, all different sorts of stuff. The Chinese with their, you know, skill in having silk, they would make their own sheath condoms from silk paper. 
that would then be applied and used with oil lubrication. Sheaths then became more prevalent as disease and plague would spread from the east all the way through to Central Europe. The Japanese would use something called a kabutagata, which was a shell that was used to cover the glands. It was made of tortoiseshell, but occasionally also of leather, and this could also be used as a supplement for those who suffered from erectile dysfunction. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. That's in the ancient world. If we fast forward going into the 1500s, 1600s, etc., right there into Europe, this is when you start to see a lot of enlightenment developmental ideas with science, right? Like leeches. Like leeches. <laughs> like leeches. <laughs> so the European scientists at this time would build upon the foundations of earlier knowledge and medicine that was set by the Romans and the Greeks. And so you'd have different academic figures like Leonardo da Vinci that would get detailed anatomy drawings of people so they could really figure out how people worked all of stuff different based on dissection and when you have the protestant reformation this would start to challenge more the policy of conservatism of the roman catholic church and a spread of greater knowledge so then you have a guy called gabriel Fallopio, and he is an italian astronomer that is accredited with describing the fallopian tube that's where that comes from and he would make contributions to the condom. In a book called De Morbo Gallico, which literally means, mind you, the French disease. Quick, quick little survey here. Are they talking about syphilis? They're talking about syphilis. Oh, I'm so glad you remembered that one. <laughs> it is quite literally in every single period drama you can watch. They all talk about um, the French pox. The French pox. Yeah. The, Why is it called the French pox? Because I'm pretty sure everybody, every country had it. Yes. And here's, that's the funny part. That's why I have to talk about it. Syphilis was used uh, as basically an insult for everything. No country wanted to have it associated with them. They didn't at all. So to the English, it was the French pox. To the French, it was the, I think they called it the Italian disease. Like each country would call the disease by another country's name. And that was just what they would do because they're constantly trying to shift the blame of, no, it wasn't us. It was others. Why are you saying it's us? No, we didn't do it. It's them. Literally, that's why. And that is the whole origin for all the weird names when it comes to syphilis. So this guy in this book called The French Disease, he describes a sheath of linen that would be used for protection against syphilis. The sheath, which would cover the glands, would then be fastened with a ribbon, which I just imagine, you know, just on a guy's. They wrap up their whole little thing with linen and they, they tie a little ribbon on it. So it's cute. 
Please. And they would then lubricate it with different things, like whether it's oil or just like saliva. He ran experiments on 1,100 men using this and showed that if you used a sheath, it would protect you from contracting the disease. Amazing thought process, I know, right? But that was like one of the first tests to really determine how to protect yourself from a venereal disease. The sheaths from this time could also be made of like lamb or goat intestines, and they would be crafted by butchers. Like you'd have butchers who would be making condoms because they understood that these parts of these animals had really high like tensile strength, you know, like for intestines. And that's just what they would use. Fast forward a little bit more going into the 17th century and the use of condoms just start becoming more and more well documented. The fertility rate in England at this time had significantly reduced due to employment of things like sheets made of intestines and bladders, which pissed off a lot of people in the church because to them, the use of a sheath and things for protection, that was a sin because you were performing sex for the purpose of recreation, not procreation. Best friend, your church your your church. I when know. I was raised Catholic. I we understand. We wanted to get married. I was looking at what we had to do to get married in his church, like his family church. And they, too, believed that. So I'm just going to leave it there. You, ha- you, d- you didn't you didn't attend anything like you attended family planning classes. That was like a thing that'd be required to get married in the church. And it's one of the reasons why I chose not to, because we were so busy with work. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> Okay, and if we fast forward even further, then we have Charles Goodyear. Now, this Gabby is an American inventor who would really start to change the idea of the condom itself. Because when you had more industrial development, the creation of the technique of rubber vulcanization during the Industrial Revolution would change everything because this was the process where sulfur and natural rubber would get heated together in order to form a more malleable and durable material something that would have higher elasticity and tensile strength. So by the 1860s, condoms, artificial condoms, were starting to be produced on a much larger scale, with the major benefit being that they could be reused and also afforded at a cheaper price. (laughs) Yes, for any one of you who has the disposable condoms, there's a reason why they say disposable condoms. Are there still reusable ones? That's a great question. I think some people would have some. Are you looking it up? Please actually you know, do it. Do it. Look it up right now and see if there are reusable condoms that people would have. Well, I feel like they'd be better for the environment. So <laughs> you're probably not wrong, but specifically the creation of this process during industrialization allowed for that to be a thing where they were able to be produced in much larger numbers for more reliable amounts. And I see a look of horror on your upon your face. What's up? What do you what do you, Is what this do you, a what joke? What did you find? What did you find? Re- no, I don't think that's a joke. That, that, that's it's like a sheath. That's a physical sheath. No, like they quite. OK, we're getting off track. Let's just you guys, yeah. if you want to look it up, look it up. Gabby, but. Remember the thing how we described before in that one episode we did on sex toys about what would happen is that people would, would make casts. That's what they cast, did. They made they a would, mold of it. Yes. And they would add add ons to it like bumps and all different kinds that's of things. What, yeah. Basically, there, there are reusable condoms and they just make a mold. Which I understand the, um, I get the idea. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So that's exactly what they would do here. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so these things start to develop, right, more, and skin condoms made from intestines or bladder might be able to provide a little bit more comfort than the thicker rubber ones, but they over time become significantly more outdated by the end of the 19th century. Going into the 20th century, though, World War I would see the deployment of condoms in massive scales, along with weapons and ammunition and all the other stuff in the German army to kill people. The American and British army, funnily enough, did not use condoms. That was not a standard thing. Like people, why? Well, people could have them, but it wasn't like something that was issued to them. So why was the German army issuing condoms? That's a very great question. Like these men are in the field. I mean, they knew that it would help prevent venereal disease, but I think it's a matter of what they would provide with people. So the, you're telling me the Germans are the only ones who dished out the things for the health of their own army? At first, yeah. And so over the course of World War One, during the campaign, it was found that the American army had a massive amount of soldiers that got syphilis and gonorrhea. Can't say I didn't see that happening. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it wasn't until World War II then that condoms became a standard issue things that would actually be deployed for soldiers. But the success for soldiers in decreasing the number of cases of syphilis and gonorrhea, that only really happened because in World War II, you saw the development of penicillin. Okay, or after that makes World a lot of sense. So th- that was actually the thing that stopped the spread, not actually the use of condoms. Maybe because they didn't use them. Yeah, some of them probably just straight up did not. But I mean, here's the thing. We've been talking about this for a long time, and we have not even gotten into the creation of the pill yet. This is, this is a long episode, I know, and has the potential to be so, so much longer. So I've had to mitigate myself at different points, and there are so many tangents that we could have gone on with different jokes. I think that that is a good stopping point to really end this story. If you would like to see us do something on the pill, which has its own very dark and twisted story. It is mind you. so dark. Yeah. Then please let us know uh, for anyone for when this immediately gets posted onto Patreon first. Let us know in the comments or in the case here on Spotify. Let us know what you think about the episode and our show and what we did with advertisements. I didn't say like ad break at any point over the course of this episode. We're just going to. Start inserting the things here at enunciation points, I guess, because some people were saying to do that. It was just it's always been harder, I guess, to do. I will figure it out. But thank you guys for listening. I appreciate all of you. Thank you very much. And goodbye, guys. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.